Hi, everyone. I learned as a child that organized people willing to take a stand against injustice can change the reality of their lives. For many people today, the American dream is not the reality they live every day. Join me for a series of discussions with leaders, activists, and everyday people who are organizing our communities, organizing workers, women, young and old, and building a movement to challenge economic injustice, racism, and the politics of usual. I am Dr. Patricia Campos Medina, and this is Activista Rise Up, a forum for activists by activists. Welcome to Activista Rise Up. I am Dr. Patricia Campos Medina, and today I am proud to kick off this forum by activists for activists with a very special guest, Chuck Rocha. Chuck is the author of a new book, uh, Tio Bernie, inside the story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos into the political revolution. He's the founder and CEO of Solidarity Strategies and one of the top political strategists in the country and a former top senior advisor for Bernie Sanders during 2016 and the 2020 presidential campaign. Welcome, Chuck. So, so glad to have you join me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so proud of you and all that you'll be able to accomplish so far. I know that you get up very early and you do a million things by 4 a.m. So how are you doing already? How are you feeling? Today I feel good. I've already worked out and lifted weights for an hour. I've already ran a 5K. I've already been to the post office. I've already done two conference calls. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the energy that, that I remember you talking about uh, <laughs> that you had to keep to do to keep up with Bernie Sanders. So I read your book. Look at all my notes. Oh, that is awesome. You think that it's a lot of energy. My fiance would say it's crazy. Crazy. Well, <laughs> it's that energy that has gotten you this far. So you and I know each other for a long time. How many years now, Patricia? Oh, 20 I, years? It's like 20 years. Right. We were both at the same time in Washington, D.C. We got there at the same time. And in your book, you talk about how when you got to D.C., you were one of the three people of color in a huge conference room at the AFL-CIO. So I felt like I might have been one of the three people of color that you saw there because I remember you and Tony Padilla, yes. and Oscar Sanchez, and Jose Laluz, and I always grab to you guys to help me uh, survive and be successful during that time. So I don't know if you remember our karaoke nights at the DNC. I do. <laughs> I, I created so many relationships with so many white guys in the labor movement and in the, in the Capitol Hill at that time, um, and as an immigrant woman with an accent trying to do legislative work on the Hill, you know how important those relationships are. So thank you for being part of that initial uh, family that we built together in Washington, D.C. Um, so I don't, I don't um, so when I read your book, the stories like that stood out for me because I always go into a place and I, I always think, do you know, what is, what is it I'm trying to accomplish in this room today? So my first question to you is, um, you were one of those people that's always stood out to me because you were always so proud of who you were and where you came from. Um, 
But what, and, and, but I wanted to get to that essence because in your book you talk about, um, you know, the hard choices that you have to make throughout life and you make some good ones and you make some hard ones. Um, why did you decide to stand out when you got into DC and to make a mark as a, as a Texan from, as a Mexican from Texas? Like, what made you make that choice? Well, it was, it's in the book and, and, and you told the story that, you know, 20 years ago, Patricia, when me and you were there in the very beginning, we were just children. It's so intimidating to be in those rooms. And it was more intimidating, I feel like, for you for being a woman. And it was more intimidating for me because I had never been to college and I never knew much about the world, right? So we all have our own insecurities. And so I realized quickly, like you talked about the story of the DNC and us going there to socialize and sing and things that make us happy, yeah. that all of these white guys were the same, is that they, they all had good hearts, many of them. A lot of them were really great organizers that were white, but... They all went to college. They all did this. They all went from these means. They all wore these suits. They all, when they were casual, still wore khakis and a button-up white shirt. When they were casual, they didn't wear their tie. And I first thought I was really different because of how I spoke, right? Everybody identified me as this Mexican from Texas because I'm brown. And then, you know, I wore this cowboy hat. But I thought that early on it was important that to highlight what made me different, which was the way I speak which was being from Texas, which was not really going to any universities, but kind of owning the part of the world of me growing up uh, poor and working in a factory. Because I was sitting at the AFL-CIO, and what I had that none of those guys around the table had, and I mean guys because there were hardly no women. Yes, uh, I remember that. That, um, that I'd actually worked in a factory, that I actually had been a union steward on the shop floor, that I'd actually processed grievance that I'd actually been to arbitration, that I'd actually put together union rallies. All of the things that we talked about are the people we wanted to get to with the with the messaging. I had actually been one of those people. Yeah. And that's all I had ever been. So that's why I think to answer your question, why I gravitated to that. Yeah. I always also felt that um, people like you and me were more able to talk about what being an American worker is. Mm -hmm. Because I used to say, I when I go into a meeting in Congress, I talk about my parents' experience. I talk about what it is to be a housekeeper making minimum wage and trying to put three, uh, four kids through college. So I always felt like I, they had to know where I stand. Um, so I appreciated that from you and from, and from Tony and from all the people that, that created that community. I want to I think that's a hard choice for Latinos to make when you're in a big room. Do I blend in or do I stand out? And what is the impact that you have to make? So I want to make, I want to drive you to a point that you made in your book that you said that uh, you, be, you believe in the philosophy of chances and choices. And uh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, so you're a philosopher too. <laughs> and, and in that you said that you had a choice to work, you know, to, to work directly for Bernie Sanders, but you, um, that, that there was a chance that got you there also, but it's a mixture. But what was one choice that you made before you got to that place with Bernie Sanders that put you on a path to be in the room where it happens? Um, you know, you, you talk about the labor movement, you talk about when you took, left the union and created Solidarity Strike. Well, that, that decision that you made that put you in the room where it happens. I, you know, it's, 
My son, I laugh because my, I give my son, I have a grown son who has two beautiful grand boys of mine, Wyatt and, and, and Rowan Rocha. And he, and I stay on him all the time. Um, he's like, I know dad, I know chances and choices. I'm like, it's about the chances you take and the choices you make. Yeah. And throughout my career, I was put in those positions and it could be as easy as do you, when I was young, do you have that one more beer at the nightclub before you drive home? You know, chances of, do you let what somebody may have popped off and said on a picket line, you know, drive you to physical violence. And for me as an old redneck, you know, hitting somebody on a picket line who was crossing a picket line was something I would do in a heartbeat. But is that the smartest thing to do? Should I really put myself at risk? Blah, blah, blah. Those throughout my life, getting a chance, right? Like my dad getting me that job in the factory and the, the chief steward coming around that night. And I tell this story of wanting to recruit me to be uh, the union steward on my team because my union steward had bid off on a better shift. That, that choice I made to do what he had asked me to do, which was to be the steward, opened up every door to everything I've ever done. Actually being here today, like there are lots of those choices in the book, but yeah. the first one and one of the most important ones was to accept the job of being the union steward. And let me be clear. I was not a union activist. I knew nothing about the union. I knew nothing about the world. I literally told him I would do it because he explained to me, it's a funny part of the book, that if I was to be the union steward and I needed to do union work, the union would bring somebody in on overtime to do my job for me. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like a great thing. Sign me up to do that. And talking to your own personal needs. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and because I, and I try to explain this to activists, young activists now who are activists born or are activists made? I have this debate with people and I was like, I was not a born activist, but I, then I say, oh, excuse me, I think I was a born activist, but I didn't know that. And I didn't know what to do or how to be an activist, but doing this, that was very self-serving. I could have cared less about why to be a, the union or the contract. I wanted somebody to do my job so I didn't have to and I still got paid for it. But opening up that door and then learning about the union, and then learning about what the union was doing. And then me becoming a steward. Oh, my God. I was really good at it. And I found my calling. Yeah. I was good communicating. And what I really love, and I think I talk about this in the book, is opening up your eyes. Is that I really realized later in life that the reason I was good at it is I, I had always been that person of having to be the protector. My mother yeah. was just 15 when I was born. And she was a really small woman. So I was always this big, overgrown boy. So I always had to protect my mom and my sister. When I went to high school, I was an offensive lineman and this big football player to weigh 300 pounds. So I had to protect my football player friends and my quarterback. Yeah. And then throughout all the instances in my life, I was always the protector of the big guy in the room who had to make sure that the women and these little people and these children, like you had to come through me in all of those instances, even to the point to where I was a bouncer in bars in my youth, throwing out drunks who were like doing wrong things. So it all made sense later in life, but I did not know at the moment. Yeah. So the whole idea of activists are no born are made. I think this sort of come, um, it's very dear to me because you, know, you and I are organizers, union organizers, political organizers, and we always have to figure out what is the self-interest driving people to action, right? Because that's what an organizers do. So um, in your book, you, uh, you also talk about when, uh, when Bernie Sanders asked you, Chuck, why do you say Latinos don't vote? So in applying the whole idea of Latino voters are not born, they're made. You know, I, I think I, I apply that logic to you. But why, 
what did you say to Bernie Sanders to get him to invest in the plan that you have been selling for a long time? Because you have been selling the Latino vote. People like you and me have been talking about we need resources to ask Latinos to vote. But what, what get you to be ready to tell Bernie Sanders, yes, they don't vote, but this is how we're going to turn it around? You know, me and, me and Bernie had had a, a conversation after the first presidential election. And I put it in the book about us having a talk before the 18 election. And we're just, he's just asking me, like, Chuck, I always hear that Latinos don't show up at the right, at the biggest numbers as white people and blah, blah, blah. And why do Latinos not vote? And I just told him that nobody really made it a consorted effort to come to the community and have that conversation. And yeah. he asked me what we would do to make that different if he ran. And at that moment, he's still considering running for 2020. And I told him, and I think that the key to that is, and he got it, and he he bought into that. Now, at that point, there wasn't a presidential election yet for him. But putting me in a position of power to be over budgets, be over hiring, to, I tell the story about turning down the campaign manager job and becoming a senior advisor and running many, many, many aspects of the campaign. Yeah. Of That's the reason that it got implemented is because I demanded that it would be implemented, but he didn't have to take my demands, but he trusted me and more so Jeff Weaver trusted me to be like, let's do this and let's make sure that Chuck, no, they didn't question me. And I'd always been questioned of why, why would we want to spend this money? And in the book, I even talk about there are senior people on the team that I would find out later who also didn't believe me and were like, why are we spending all this money to talk to Latinos when Latinos don't vote? You know, why is Chuck Rocha taking us down this rabbit hole? And yeah. so I think that is the key of having the trust. And I talk about the importance of white validators, Patricia, yeah. that me and you have had through our lives. Yes. Lots of Latinos have helped me and you, but we've had lots and lots of white people yes. who have helped us as well. And yeah. Jeff Weaver is one of those for me. Yeah. Um, the whole idea, yeah, of champions, of bringing people along, of opening opportunities for other Latinos, I think that's the greatest gain that we have had from the Bernie campaign. Well, many gains, because I believe that he elevated the message that resonates with our community, but also created opportunities through you for uh, hundreds of Latino activists, um, that, including my dear friend and my sister, Ana Lilia Mejia, who, you know, we love here in Jersey and she's our, she's our hero. So when you uh, reach out to her and, and, and try to get her to work for Bernie, I said, you have to do it, Ana Lilia, <laughs> because I knew he will keep you and Bernie on your toes. So, uh, Anna Lilia is a great story of, and I tell the story of, of interviewing Anna Lilia in the book and how, uh, for those of you, when you read the book, not giving you too much, but uh, the first time I ever saw Bernie Sanders cry was in the interview with Anna Lilia and Anna Lilia made Bernie cry in the interview talking about her own children. It was a very powerful moment and yeah. it scared me to death because I didn't know what was going on. Uh, and I looked to Jeff when the interview was over and I said, does that happen all the time? And he was like, no, that never happens. I'm like, do you think she got the job? And he was like, oh, she got the job. Yes. And, yeah. But there was more to it. So like I'm trying on diversity and inclusion. Like that's the point I wanted to make in the book is that for long times, white men have, have had the positions of power and white women to to staff up these campaigns. And if I was going to be in charge of that, I wanted to put women and women of color, especially women of color in positions of power throughout the campaign to make sure that we had a big influence over everything that the campaign did. So since I had turned down the campaign manager job and we had found the first Muslim American who did a fantastic yes, job yes, yes, to yes, be yes. the manager, I knew I needed the next strongest position was the political director over the whole country. So it was, I was going to find a woman of color. 
And I remember reaching out to my brother, Rafael Navarre, and Rafael was like, you need to meet my sister, Anna Lilia. And we just happened to be all going to the same conference the next weekend. And I tell the story of meeting her there, falling in love with her, because me and Patricia are so much alike. If you know us too, Anna Lilia is just a third step of me. And I remember you two called me from New Mexico and you said, Patricia, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was the funniest thing. And that just goes to show how small the circle of Latino activists are and how it's important for us to support each other and elevate each other whenever we have to, that, that, uh, that opportunity. So I, I want to thank you for living up to that commitment of raising other opportunities for other people of color. Sure. Um, one of the reasons I decided to begin this dialogue um, with leaders and activists like you um, is because, you know, I had the, um, in the same tradition like you brought in Analilia, when Analilia left working families in New Jersey and she was going to go work for Bernie, she said, I need to leave the state in the hands of someone I know will hustle. And you need to take over as vice chair of Bernie in New Jersey. And I was like, Okay, whatever you want me to do. So I got the opportunity to go all over New Jersey organizing early on in September, you know, of 2019, organizing uh, um, uh, committees for Bernie. And I met a lot of people, not just Latinos, but young white activists, women activists that, that build this campaign. Um, so when that ended, we were disheartened, we were heartbroken. And I must have taken hundreds of calls saying what we're going to do now what do we do now i'm so brokenhearted I, I don't know what to do with all this energy and all this organization i'm sure you took some many of those calls so what do we tell now to those young organizers or young people who were so um who believe in the bernie sanders message of not me us like where do we put that energy today I think that uh, you make a great point and there's a lot of energy out there. And I think that them understanding a couple parts. One is making those folks understand how far we came and that we couldn't have done as much as we did. And we came so close to almost winning, which coming so close sometimes is not satisfying enough. So, A, I'm going to talk about that. And then, B, I'm going to pivot to accountability for this next administration, hopefully, and the Congress. So starting with what we accomplished. What we did was historic, and a young activist won't understand that it was historic because they're a young activist, like when me and you were young. And we didn't yeah. realize back then the rooms we were in were so special and that we, it was unheard of for uh, a young man to be in that room, but especially unheard of for somebody as young as you were, Patricia, to be in that room. So we look back later and was like, I can't believe that we went through that. It makes us appreciate it so much more. Well, that's what these young activists will appreciate long after this primary is over, is how much we did accomplish in a multi-person candidate. And I write in the book how we came within like three days of being the nominee. And I explain how that happened and how the consolidation of the ticket happened and how Bernie Sanders was well on his way to be the nominee because of you and all of those young activists out there. So appreciating what you've done and understanding that it was not for nothing. And that what we built is something that'll be there. And you'll see the repercussions of that with AOC. You see yeah. the repercussions with Jamal in New York. You see the repercussions with Cori Bush in Missouri. And more and more of that will happen where some of the establishment Democrats will get beat by more of these young progressives of color. The last point I want to make is if Joe Biden is elected, there will be a time and a need for all of those activists to hold his feet to the fire and hold him accountable on the issues that we disagree with him on. 
Now, let's keep in mind, I'm going to push and do everything I can do for Joe Biden because it's a lot easier for me to try to push his administration to be right on an issue that he may not quite be their own than it is to push any Donald Trump administration to be anywhere that I would like for them to be. It's the difference of moving Joe Biden this far or not moving Donald Trump this far. So that's what I explained to them, and it's their job. Now, let's keep in mind, if we were to keep the House, and if we were to win a slim margin, and that's all the margin we would have if we won the Senate, the first thing all of these Democrats will want to do as we head head into the next midterm election is they'll all want to run towards the center and want to act like Republicans because they all feel like, They have a chance to lose their jobs in the next election because in the next election, if Joe Biden is elected in this election, historically, we know that we lose seats. So the Democrats wrongly will say, think that the way that we keep those seats is if we act more like Republicans and give them what they need. Exactly. Yeah. And we talk and we talk to voters who voted for Trump rather than talk to the whole universe Mm -hmm. that, that is not yet convinced. So how can these activists engage in making sure that we have a Biden administration that we can move towards a progressive agenda. So what, how can they get involved? And I know you have a vehicle, Nuestro, Nuestro PAC. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with that and how people can help and support those efforts? Nuestro PAC is the largest Latino-focused national super PAC. And what I mean by that is it's very partisan super PAC. And in the, in the democratic world, in the progressive space, there's lots of wonderful C3s and C4 Latino-focused organizations, whether it's Mi Familia Vota, whether it's Unidos, whether it's all these long-standing LULAC, for God's sake, that's been around for hundreds of years. Like, there are great groups that are doing good work in our community. A, I didn't want to replicate that because they're doing that. But what we have not had in my lifetime is a partisan vehicle to do pure partisan work, to tell a Latino in English and Spanish, this candidate is bad, this candidate is good, vote for this Democrat here who's doing this thing. And so now we have that. And uh, so far this cycle, my super PAC has raised over $7 million to get Latinos out. Because I wanted a vehicle to build off of the work we had done with Bernie to get Latinos out to vote for Joe Biden and any good Democrat out there. So I say that to tell you and to answer your question is... What we have to do is the grassroots groups have to come together to hold their politicians accountable via calls to Congress, emails to Congress, or visits to Congress. While you're doing that, I need to fund my group who could be doing TV commercials and radio and mail into those districts in English and Spanish that says, Congressman ABC is doing this and we need to hold him accountable. Call his office today because what he's doing is turning his back on the party and why we first elected him. So you can't have one without the other. People always think that Bernie Sanders did really great because he had great grassroots support. A, that is true. But that by itself won't win you a presidential nomination. That's right. You have to have that coupled with a we spent $50 million on TV. We spent $10 million on on mail. We spent $100 million on digital. That coupled with this amazing grassroots army is why we were competitive. So you can't have one or the other. We've tried to run campaigns forever without the grassroots component with just a bunch of TV commercials. That's (laughs) great, but it just don't work without the other support. It has to be hand in hand. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, So have you ever, you know, you... 
because the Latino population is growing with, with, with a growing electorate, with a young electorate, I think you're met, that the work that you've been doing for 30 years, getting to this point now is relevant, it's res, it resonates. In, that, in those 30 years of political work, do you, ever, do you ever feel like an outsider in the Democratic Party? Because a lot of my young activists feel like an outs outsider sometimes. And so how do you survive holding the Democratic Party accountable and yet leaving, pushing it to live up to its, its uh, ideals? Of being an inclusive party, how do we? How do you survive? So, uh, and why would you tell a young activist today who feels that perhaps the Democratic Party is not welcome him to stick it out and 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 work to change it? Everything you said is right, and there's not an absolute. First, I'm a Democrat, and I want to vote for Democrats, and I think that Democrats speak to the issues that I care about because all of this is a personal decision for you and your voter, and you, Mister or Mrs. Activist. There are things that we care about, right? It could be the environment. Let's just use that. Democrats are going to be 98% more right on trying to protect the environment than any Republican. Now, we can sit back and throw rocks at Democrats who take oil money and gas money, and you would be fair to do that. But we have more chance to make that person be accountable to us or to beat them in a primary if we don't like them. But it's our party until we come up with a new system or a new party to be with. But I tell people all the time, I'm an outsider and I'm a, and I'm part of I'm sitting in D.C. right now on Capitol Hill. Yeah. I couldn't be more in the bubble of the Beltway than anybody. I got to run a presidential campaign. I work for lots of different organizations. But even I today, the most successful Latino operative in the nation, I'm humbled to say that, but I am because there's hardly only five or six of me and Patricia and all of us who've been around a long time doing this. Yes. Even today, just to make your point, my, my firm, that's the largest Latino owned firm, 100% Latino representation on the firm. We all, we all, you know, it's, we're very facing forward around Latinos. Um, We've never worked on a Senate race in our life. We've never been hired to work on a Senate race. We've never been hired ever to work on a top 25 congressional race. We've never worked on a governor's race. Even though you've won some, many congressional races. <laughs> right, and we've won a lot, but the top ones, right? So yeah. that's where all the money is, the top 10. And then in the Senate races where there's this huge money, and in the governor's races. Now, I tell you that to say that I've got a firm that does millions and millions of dollars worth of work, and it's super successful, and I'm humbled by that. Yet, I'm still not accepted enough to be in the elite class of all white consultants, and they're all white, all white men and all white women who run all of these races at that level. Once you get to that level, it's this small group of people, and they all do all of that work. And, and most of that work is great work. My yeah. point is that we have to change the face of that work and offer up for women of color, men of color to be in that room because the demographics are changing that we reach out to the same old way we've always ran campaigns is not the way that they should always be run and that's why i wrote the teal bernie book yeah. so yes i'm in the bubble and yes i'm accepted by some and most of our work is organizational moveon.org our revolution uh sierra club unidos like that's where i make my money and then to patricia's point you know insurgent you know, congressional candidates or yeah. or the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, who I worked for, Jorge Alorza. I love Guatemalan, yeah. right? So yeah. like people like that, I go seek out, you know, and try to get to work for them. Yeah. Well, you know, the 
changing demographics, the changing dynamics of the race, how America is changing, I think is opening opportunities for more Chuck Rochas and more solidarity strategies. And one of the ways that we could help those young Latinos is to just be, you know, be the mentors and inspire them to continue uh, saying it's okay sometimes to be an outsider, but if you stick to your values and you continue working hard, you can change the political party. So in the context of where we are, in the context that the Democratic Party and the top pollsters and the top political strategies have, I feel sometimes are using the same um, uh, strategy to get voters out. The polling shows that uh, Donald Trump is even uh, with Latinos on, with Biden on, on support. So what is your take on the current polling and how do we, because it ought to be, ought, the, the difference should be wider, but in the polling that they conducted, it shows that it's very close. What is your take on that polling and how can we as activists change that um, and, and push it towards, let's really, really get Donald Trump afuera. Uh, there's a few things happening, and that's a big question. One is that he's only tied with certain polls in Florida, and that's where it's really tied with Latinos. In polls in North Carolina, in Arizona, Latinos are still supporting Joe Biden at like 67% to like 30% in most of those polls. But that's still, we shouldn't be satisfied with that. And a couple of things have happened of the reason why that is. The first thing is, is Donald Trump was smart, and he went up on Spanish TV in the summer, started talking to our people, not about why... Donald Trump was great, but why Joe Biden was so bad in his opinion. Yeah, yeah I remember. And he spent a million dollars talking to Latinos in Spanish before Joe Biden ever went on TV. And that was a mistake. And now Joe Biden has made up for that, but he started just slower. Now Joe Biden has spent much more money than Donald Trump talking to Latinos, but he's done all of that really late. And this is a point me and Patricia has made for years and years as you wait way too long to start talking to our community. Yeah, three weeks before. So... And so what he's done now is it, that made the vote soft for him. And what I mean by soft is it should be rock solid for him and in all with Biden. So because A, we started late, he started late. And then you combine that with what I call a little bit of a Bernie hangover in places like Arizona and Nevada, where Bernie won 60 or 70 percent of the vote. And I spent four or five million dollars in just those states. They had never heard from Joe Biden. They had only heard from Bernie Sanders. So it took them a little bit longer to get on the Biden train. Yeah. You couple that with the last and the most important piece, which is the over with the coronavirus and the way it's overly impacted our community. We have Latinos dying at three times the rate as white people. Yes. Latino children, eight times more likely to catch the disease based off of the CDC study. Then you have this undertow of anxiety because Latinos have not only been called essential workers and are dying faster, but that we're also not. Um, we're not being talked to at our doors because there's no field either, right? And yeah. normally, Patricia could give this speech just like I could, but there's two ways most people go to talk to Latinos. First, you Google Translate and add in English to Spanish and put it on Univision in the last two weeks, right? Yes. And then the last three weeks, you take a bunch of young brown kids and you put them in the Latino neighborhoods knocking on doors, and then a Democrat will say, we've done yeah. our Latino no, outreach. We're good. We're good. Yes, exactly. So what can uh, activists in New Jersey do uh, to impact those states that are critical for a Biden victory? Because at this point, like you said, we need Biden to win because we're more likely to, to, to change policies with him than with Biden. So what can we do here to help you get the message to other states that matter in this election? Right. I mean, if you are in New Jersey and you're in one of the target congressional races, keeping those Democrats that we have in New Jersey is critical. 
and having a chance to beat a few Republicans maybe in New Jersey, that's also, but I understand that the gerrymandering of what the New Jersey congressional districts are like, there's not a whole lot of opportunity, right? Yes. I, I get that. We're creating opportunities at the local level. Absolutely. So your local elections, where they are, stay there. But another one is, is figuring out organizations you can log into their virtual organizing tools like Move On, uh, like Unidos, even the DCCC has an organizing tool where you can call into other states. And I've really been pushing uh, Latino Spanish speakers to call or text into states where uh, we can get to Latino of, of yeah. voters. Like in Florida, in everybody says Florida, Arizona, Nevada, but I also want people to think of, I need you calling Latinos in Pennsylvania. Yes. Pennsylvania is huge. Yes, There's is. anything you can do in Pennsylvania, all these new uh, Puerto Ricanians who've moved here from the island who live Maybe in Alabama. Yes. yes. Bethlehem, Scranton, all yeah. on that east side. Like any way to get to those Boricuas is very, very important and a big, big part of us being able to win Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so we are here at, um, you know, with the different organizations, we're trying to organize this weekly phone banks going into Pennsylvania and, and, and Nevada and Arizona, the places you had mentioned. So we just want to encourage that type of activity uh, moving forward. Um, but, um, you know, you and I can talk for a long time. Uh, we had so much to discuss and so much to do. Um, how, you know, we here in New Jersey said we're blue, but we have a growing electoral Latinos. We have very good political representation of Senator Menendez and Sears and Cory Booker. And we are really uh, trying to uh, enact policies that are up and down the state. So um, how, how do we build that grassroots Base so that new candidates can can evolve and we can and we can build a progressive grassroots base uh, to keep New Jersey blue, but also to empower Latinos in New Jersey. One recommendation that you could give us. I think recruiting people to run in the state houses and the local election because of the way you have your state elections in off years, yes. the turnout is always lower than the regular election year. But that is an opportunity for us as Latinos that if we were to really mobilize our vote and show up in the off year, then it shows you being more powerful than maybe the, the numerical system uh, actually gives you credit for. So that means if, if you had more Latinos show up in an off year, it shows you bigger than you really are. And I think that's the biggest opportunity yeah. that you have. And who is that next Patricia? Who is that next woman who is in the community doing this work at the grassroots level? My communications director for my firm is Eileen Garcia. She's been with me since she was 18 as an intern, right? Yeah. Her parents came here from Venezuela. She's a daughter of an immigrant. She's a type one diabetic, but like, she's just an activist. Like she does all the work at the firm and she's 21 for God's sakes. Like I could even find Germany on a map when I was 21. <laughs> I know. So like those are the kind of people who Patricia, me and you should be mentoring to make sure they run for city council and they get involved because they can build a network over a couple of years to be that next state rep or state senator. And I think that's the biggest opportunity in New Jersey. Exactly. And we are, we are on our way to doing that. We have a pack for to elect Latinas, the Lupe pack. We are having these old discussions about, um, you know, take back New Jersey. How do we uh, support candidates at the local level? So one of the things that you were successful and that I'm trying to figure out how to do in New Jersey is how to get Latinos to contribute more political money. And and um, there's this assumption that Latinos don't contribute, but we don't contribute big checks because we don't have 
big checks to contribute, but we do contribute small donations and that's how we're building our pack. So um, I know you've been able to do this and inspire people to give back. What would you say to um, perhaps a Latino businessman or an entrepreneur? Why should they invest in, the, in, in local grassroots organizing and in the Latino vote? Uh, in, because that's always a pet peeve of mine, how, how we have to go outside of our community and convince white, uh, white politicians to give us money. So how do we build that base to get money from our community to do political organizing? I think it starts with asking. And I think that outside of, we, we think that, they, that Latinos won't give. Yeah. When Latinos won't give if we don't ask them. And we, I think we have to ask more Latinos and hope that 10% of them give. People don't realize that Bernie Sanders raised millions and millions of dollars from young Latino donors. No, I should just say any Latino donor because they were young and old. Yeah. Gave, I think at the last count was like over $10 million to Bernie Sanders in small donations. And I think that's where you build from is if when you have a candidate who actually can get to that demographic and give them a link to give the credit card to give 20 bucks, they will give. You know, one of the proudest things I've seen with Nuestro Pack, and yes, we've raised some large dollar contributions, but just when I released this new ad this week, uh, Mi País, which is our Puerto Rican ad going after Donald Trump, we had 535 people give online donations okay. to Nuestro Pack. Now, I'm going to go back and see how many of them are Rodriguez and Gonzalez and Rocha and Campos, and because I want to see, and I want to you, because this has been my pet peeve, of how do you cultivate these donors over a long period of time to get others donating. And so know that I don't have all the answers, but I have seen it start to work with now people becoming way more comfortable giving a little bit of donation online. I truly believe uh, that with giving, it works like with voting. If you don't ask Latinos to vote, they don't vote. If you don't ask them to contribute, they don't contribute. So it's the same formula. And I want to commend you for uh, having running this beat for a long time and now we are you know we're trying to replicate it so you we could talk for hours uh, and i i thank you for giving me this time so what's next for chuck rocha and how can people stay connected with you thank you for uh inviting me to be here and thank you i would take this is the busiest time of the year but i would do anything for you patricia you know that because you have been my sister for so long uh, i want people to follow me on twitter at chuck rocha Follow me uh, on Instagram. Follow me on all the social medias because I'm always like this and I'm always calling people out and I need other people to have my back and to be an echo chamber that Patricia has been in my life for 20 years. Of This morning, there was a graphic that showed these amazing six, six African-Americans that are running for the U.S. Senate. And I just simply retweeted and said, why do none of these black candidates have any black owned consultants working for them? Because it's my job to expose the truth because I'm the senior strategist on what's really happening so there can be change for young black and brown and women of color. Uh, the next thing beyond that for me is I'm really worried about this lagging number with young men of color when it comes to voting for Joe Biden. And it's become a drumbeat of how young men are underperforming compared to women. A, I recognize that women are smarter than men. That's why they overperform. It's just a given fact. But I also know as a man of color who back in my 20s was as machismo as any idiot 20-year-old boy there is. I think my next project after the beginning of the year is going to be putting together an organization to mentor young men of color who may be fathers like I was or young fathers like my son is. I think it's something very unique that I can only speak to. Uh, 
as a very macho man who also knows that women are smarter than me, women are better than me, and that there's a way for men to be able to work in this system uh, and to get more young men of color the mentoring and the information to make them better voters. I thank you for that because as a mother of two boys and someone who is a feminist, I also want my boys to have role models and to know that they, you know, that they have the power to change and that they can, ha they can have an opportunity in life uh, side by side with women uh, in, in the same room. So that's an excellent offer. So thank you so much for inspiring our young Latinos, uh, uh, for inspiring uh, the future generations of political activists that hopefully my kids eventually will become. Um, it, it, one thing was clear to me in your book is that you demonstrated that your Latino experience is the American experience. It's not, you know, there's not a difference. I am Latino, I am American, and it's the same. So I thank you for giving that gift to the world and to me and to my children for the future and for the, all, the, all the doors that you have opened for, for a lot of young, young Latino kids. So thank you for having me. Your visit. I, uh, you know, my, my friend, uh, we, we have a lot to do and we're going to continue doing it together. So thank you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, one of the things that I have learned from the work that we've done together uh, with Chuck and with so many labor organizers and so many campaigns that we have launched for American workers and for immigrant workers is that sometimes we win that campaign, sometimes we lose, but, uh, but the next morning you have to uh, dust off, learn your lessons, get up and fight again. That is the history of America. That's how America became a country in which immigrants and working people believe that they can have a chance to be the best that they can be. And that belief is because activists and citizens like you, like me, believe that America can be what it can be, what we dream it to be, a place of opportunity for all. Thank you, Chuck, for telling your story and for inspiring uh, activists across New Jersey and across this country, and for giving us a voice to demand equal political representation inside our political parties and in our country. 